You're listening to the feed. This is the feed. This is the feed. The feed. You're listening to the feed. In Markham. In Richmond Hill. You're listening to the feed in Vaughan. In Stouffville. In Woodbridge. In Unionville. This is The Feed on 105.9 The Region. I'm Ann Romer with York Region's only news magazine show dedicated to the issues, events, and stories that matter to all of us who live and work here. Coming up, his name is Marvin, a World War II vet walking a million steps for Baycrest. Oh, did I mention he's 99? Also ahead, dance studios are opening their doors with a few restrictions, but we begin with an investment in small business. Well, this was Small Business Week in Canada, a time normally to celebrate the achievements of small businesses from coast to coast to coast, but not this year. Because of the pandemic, many businesses have been brought to their knees. Others have had to close their doors for good. Minister of Small Business, Export Promotion and International Trade and MP for Markham Thornhill, Mary Eng, joins us with what the federal government is prepared to do to help businesses survive this second wave. So... Thank you very much for joining us, Minister Eng. It is terrific to be here and always to talk to uh, the region and, uh, and your listeners. And, and I hope you and your family and everyone is doing well and staying safe. And yours as well. So you and the Prime Minister earlier this week announced support for small businesses through what's called the Canada United Small Business Relief Fund. Can you explain what that is? Absolutely. We have, throughout this pandemic, been working on many, many measures to help small businesses get through this. I often say they need the support to bridge through COVID-19. And earlier this week, we announced $12 million. It's an investment to the Canada-United Small Business Relief Fund. And what this is is that it will provide thousands of businesses with up to $5,000 so that they can buy things like PPE or pay for some of the retrofits that they've had to do uh, in response to public health direction, or it's to help them get digital. So this is a terrific partnership that uh, we are um, that we're joining. Uh, the initiative Canada United actually was started by the World Bank of Canada with the Chambers of Commerce, and in particular, the Ontario Chamber. So it's really terrific that we've been able to come in with a $12 million investment uh, for this fund. So what is the criteria that has to be met by the small businesses in order to qualify for the grant of up to $5,000? Well, the applications are open to small businesses in every sector and industry across the entire country. And uh, the criteria is that you have to have a minimum of $150,000 in annual sales. You have to have less than 75 employees in your employee. And your business must be in business as of March the 1st. And more details about this can be found at gocanadaunited.ca because it is the Ontario Chamber of Commerce that is going to do the administrating of, uh, of this. They are going to be the ones that... Uh, that will work with the small business, and it becomes available, uh, I think, this upcoming Monday on the 26th. In fact, Rocco Rossi, the president and CEO of the Ontario Chamber of Commerce, is quoted as saying, small businesses are the cornerstones of our local economies and the key to thriving communities, creating jobs, driving innovation, and generating wealth for Canadians. Well said, and that must be important to you as well. It absolutely is important. Canada's small businesses make up 98% of all our businesses. They employ millions of Canadians. They literally are 
the backbone of every single one of our incredible communities, and certainly in New York region and Markham, Bowen Hill, which I represent. There are just literally thousands of communities. And who do you not know that is that favorite restaurant or the wonderful store that you have been going to for years? Or in Markham uh, and in the New York region, these great high-tech entrepreneurs, these are all small businesses. They all contribute to our economy. They all contribute to families and their job creators. So absolutely it's important during the pandemic that we continue to support them and help them get through this so that we can all fight this health crisis and this economic crisis together. So it seems that Canada United, the greater focus is on health and protective equipment. So why now? And did businesses come to you and say, we need help providing the protection that's necessary for our employees, for our business, and for even our customers? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we are now into a second wave, and I think that it's uh, the answer, why now? Well, we've been doing it all the way along. So, in fact, it is why now, but then why down the road as well? We're going to keep doing what we've always said we would do, which is to support small businesses during this pandemic for as long as this pandemic is going to uh, take. We hope that uh, we hope that we will get uh, get beyond this as soon as we can. But for as long as it's here, we are going to help small businesses. And we have done a number of things. We've heard from businesses that they need help with payroll, so we introduced the Canada Emergency Wage Subsidy. Or if they need help with rent relief and support, we introduced the Canada Emergency Rent Subsidy. And they also need some liquidity, some working capital. And there we've introduced a range of lending programs, including the small business loan. So we're just going to continue doing the work for businesses because they need it. We need it in our communities. Families need it. In the, uh, Canadians need it. And, uh, and we're just going to keep doing the work together as Team Canada. Another aspect of the grant is money put towards enhancing the digital or e-commerce capabilities of small businesses. How important is that? Is it kind of a make or break if a small business does not get on board with e-commerce or with anything to do with online sales and capabilities? I mean, they really can't survive at this point. Well, we are certainly seeing the rise of digital and how important digital is to businesses and getting online. We have uh, introduced some funding through, um, you know, through another investment support that we've made for Canadian businesses, particularly in Ontario, around digital Main Street, so that we can help businesses get digital. And this program, of course, uh, through the uh, Canada United uh, Small Business Relief Fund, has a component specifically to help businesses pay for those costs of going digital. So this is really a this is really another tool to help our businesses uh, pivot or manage through COVID-19, and that is really the priority, giving businesses as many tools and supports as we can so that we can bridge them to better times. What are your constituents in Markham Thornhill saying to you about the state of, of small businesses in your riding, but also really throughout York Region? Well, businesses uh, are incredible Canadians and Canadian families. I want to thank them for being incredibly resilient, which is what I have seen. And uh, on uh, sort of, I guess, at the end of Small Business Week, where you're right, typically we would be celebrating. We are celebrating, but we're just celebrating in a different way. I've met with many businesses virtually, and they're concerned. They are grateful that there is uh, some help. And I think that 
we need to keep doing the work together as Team Canada so that we can get through this. We can overcome the health crisis and at the same time get our businesses on that road to economic recovery, which is just so important to our communities. Minister Eng, what in your past helps prepare you to be the, the champion when it comes to small businesses? Well, that's a terrific question. I often remember uh, my own time growing up in a small business. Uh, my parents had a small family restaurant that they started when we immigrated to Canada. It's how I grew up. It's how they raised us. So I learned how to work. Um, you know, my, my job, my first job was in my parents' restaurant. So I, I, I draw from personal, my own personal experience and, uh, and the resilience that they demonstrated as a working family, new immigrants to Canada and all over our country. Uh, my story is no different than so many other people's stories. So drawing from that experience and just listening to so many other businesses across the country has been um, has been what has really helped us put programs together that really are responsive to Canadian small businesses. So the Canada United Small Business Relief Fund, you think back to Economics 101, supply and demand. You're helping the small businesses and with their supply in a way and keeping them protected and all that they need to continue to operate through the second wave. What about the demand side of things? Well, I think that's a very good question, and to all of uh, to all Canadians, and certainly uh, Canadians in York Region, in Markham, Thornhill, go out and visit your local business. Go out and support your local business. I think it is exceedingly important right now to do that because that demand side is really demand customers demanding what you are selling, what you are providing. So I would say this is a Team Canada approach, and let's go out and support our small businesses all throughout the country. Many regions in Ontario have been moved back into a modified stage two, including York Region. That must hamper small businesses' ability to continue to operate, Minister Eng. Well, as I say to businesses uh, across the country, and certainly in York Region, we're going to be there with you and we're going to support you. But remember the fight that we're all fighting. We are fighting the health crisis of COVID-19. I would encourage Canadians to make sure that they listen to the health direction. I would encourage Canadians to download the COVID uh, app so that you can be notified if you are exposed, so that we can all do our part in in stopping the spread of COVID-19. How we all manage COVID-19 is absolutely connected to how well we are going to do in recovering in this economy. So it's going to take all of us. And I would say to businesses and to people, listen to your health authority. Listen to our public health officer. And let's all do what we can to fight COVID-19. And that is how we're going to help our small businesses get on that road to recovery. Minister of Small Business, Export Promotion and International Trade, and MP for Markham Thornhill, Mary Eng. Thank you for the pep talk. Thank you for joining us on the feed. Thank you so much, Anne. For a business to find success, it must engage with consumers. Afwa Ball with a technology platform that helps make that connection. 
Well, it's a digital channel to support small businesses, of course, during the second wave of the pandemic. And anything that we can do to help right now will be much needed. So joining me today to talk about Get in the Loop is CEO Matt Crowell. Matt, thank you so much for your time today. Yeah, thanks for having me. Awesome. It is our pleasure. Okay, so first off, for the listeners that may not know, what is Get in the Loop? Yeah, so Get in the Loop is a technology platform that business use to market themselves. So it's a, it's a, it's a place where a small business can communicate out to a, a known audience of users, and then we have our Get in the Loop app. So the Get in the Loop app was built to inspire consumers to shop local and, and save at the same time. So we're building communities where we try and create a way for businesses to connect directly to consumers, and those consumers find the best way to support local businesses. So that's a great idea. And what made you decide to sort of create this uh, platform to help out small businesses specifically? Yeah, well, I mean, it was it was interesting. Uh, and early on, it was all about trying to solve a problem for golf courses in the Okanagan and trying to help them communicate with locals and offer special deals. And learned there was just a huge opportunity and, and the world was changing very quickly. And, and in terms of how the small business kind of had a voice and got their word out, uh, that's changed quickly. And so we, we realized there was a big gap that we could fill and, and have been working for eight years now building up the technology platform. And uh, yeah, still got a lot of work to do, but we're, we're proud of what we do today for businesses across Canada. How do small businesses connect with this platform? How does it work for them? Yeah, so right now, I mean, we've done a lot of interesting things through the pandemic here. One thing was opening up our platform and offering it for free to several businesses, several thousand small businesses across Canada as a part of this. And and we do that through unique partnerships and things. So an example is we're a partner of the Vaughn Chamber and and all of their members get to use the platform for free right now. And so a business would use Get in the Loop and it's a way for them to communicate to a local audience. So it's a tool where they can create exclusive offers. They could do a curbside pickup offer. Um, They could, we have a punch card and loyalty solution so they can build loyalty with locals. Everything's digital um, and then it goes out to the Get in the Loop app audience and community. And so it's a, it's a really neat way for a business to connect and tell their story and now it's really interesting because the whole world really is starting to get behind and believe how important it is to support small business and I mean we've seen that with our app. So uh, yeah, it's a, it's a neat little community and for a business it's a tool for them to connect direct to a c- consumer. And absolutely. And in regards to the little bit of a pivot in terms of uh, really focusing on how to help small businesses really weather this storm of the pandemic, how has the reception been like so far, especially in the last couple of months? Oh, well, I mean, yeah, huge. I mean, honestly, overnight over the last five, it's sort of like five or six years worth of growth has happened over the last six months for us in terms of adoption of our platform. Um, but I think there's just overnight businesses realized they had to find a new way to communicate and, and, and the consumer started to look. And so we're, we sort of have a unique model where Get in the Loop is actually owned by a local entrepreneur in each community. We created a digital franchise. It's called Get in the Loop Local. And so we have entrepreneurs that purchase the right to own the Get in the Loop platform in the community. And so they're like your shop local ambassador. They go out and work with the small businesses. And uh, and interestingly, through the pandemic, I mean, we've we've seen so many entrepreneurs taking the leap to open up this in their market, like the importance of helping small business communicate. Um, I mean, people are looking to bring our business and the platform to their market. We've just seen a a lot of growth in it, and and I think it's a a unique time right now, right? As as many companies like ours and other software companies and other tools that are out there that that we need more and more to be helping small business, they need a lot of ways to compete with uh, Amazon, so to speak. Absolutely. And on that note, we are talking about this, how right now is is quite a critical time for small businesses. Already, some of the businesses that went through the first wave, uh, they have not been able to make it through. That is the unfortunate, sad reality. And then those who are right now maybe having to deal with the second wave, barely hanging on. So right now, how crucial is it to be supporting these small businesses right now, given the fact that 
They are uh, a large part of the overall growth of not only the economy, but the growth of the community. Yeah, I mean, I think there's no more important time than now, especially heading into the shopping season that we know is coming right now. And it's, it is. And I, I think consumers need to realize that small businesses are doing what they can to catch up and they're using platforms like ours and others. And I mean, there's amazing Canadian companies like Shopify and others that are really helping businesses in other ways in terms of e-commerce. And, but you've got to, you've got to work a little harder. You're going to have to look a little more to go support that local business. It might, you might have to go pick it up and you might have to pay 10% more, but I think people need to realize that's important. If you want that there, that's the jobs. It's the lifeblood of the community. And I think uh, we, we've become sort of such a consumer focused group that if you can press a button on Amazon, it's the cheapest, that's the best. But I think everybody needs to realize that being a little bit more thoughtful with their purchase can make such an impact. And I think as a whole, uh, as a whole economy and as a country, if we spend in the right way, that will move the needle significantly. And, and I know small businesses are scrambling to do what they can to try and service everybody through it. You know, we're seeing so many businesses be innovative and trying to think of new ways to support customers and, and find new revenue as, as their landscape continues to change weekly, right? So, yeah, it's an important time. Definitely. Okay. And then, of course, since York Region right now, we're in the midst of the modified stage two, which means um, indoor dining at restaurants, for example, have to be closed down for 28 days. A lot of local businesses right now suffering in their own way. How do we get in the loop to, quote unquote, help them out and help small businesses weather out this sort of second wave? Yeah, I mean, well, to get in the loop, I mean, you can download our free app. It's on all the regular app stores, iOS and Android. Um, so to get in the loop, all one word, and they can download the app. It's, it's a great way to find local businesses in your area. There's dozens around you, I'm very sure. We've got a great entrepreneur named Adam, young entrepreneur that runs the Vaughn in North York region. Um, but So you can, you can look at businesses that are on our platform. That's a great way to support local. And then, you know, if you have a favorite business, it's a great time of the year to be buying a gift card and doing different things that could support them through this and showing your support and I think uh, you know we can make a movement if, if everybody makes an effort and we're starting to see that happen so yeah you can go to get in the loop and it's one way definitely to help support more local businesses in the area absolutely and then if you could just touch on if maybe somebody is a business owner and they want to be a franchise uh, part of the franchisee for get in the loop how do they do that as well yeah, so, um, well, they can go to our website and they can get in touch with us. It's getinaleap.ca at any point. Um, or, uh, or the, and there's a lot of ways to, to reach out to our team. And, uh, and otherwise, uh, yeah, that's probably the best way. That, that's how it will get directed to Adam locally. And depending where you're listening here, uh, we've got a lot of different teammates that are happy to accommodate and chat with you about what Get in the Loop can do. All right, definitely a great conversation about a new digital platform that's helping out small businesses during this time, of course, this pandemic that we continue to uh, go through. Joining me to chat today, CEO and founder of Get in the Loop, Matt Crowell. Matt, thank you so much for your time today. Yeah, thanks for having me. When we come back, we are stepping out with Marvin. This is the feed on 105.9 The Region. Do you have a story idea for the feed? Call us at 416-335-1059 or email info at 1059theregion.com. Ann Romer and more of the feed coming up. This is 1059 The Region. Welcome back to the feed on 105.9 The Region. It seems more than ever people are trying to make every minute count. Jim Lang with the story of 99-year-old Marvin Gord, the hero who walks among us. 
Well, in this new normal that we live in, it's good to be inspired by people. And a lot of people are inspired by a World War II veteran from England named Tom Moore and what he did. But there's something closer to home that's inspiring a lot of people here in New York region in the GTA, Marvin Gore. To talk more about it, uh, we'll speak to Marvin and his daughter Lisa in a second. But Rafi Lebonsky is with the Baycrest Foundation and is in charge of their major gifts and donations. So, Rafi, how are you? I'm great, thank you. Thanks for having us. We're really excited to be here today. Oh, it's it's my pleasure, and I and I I love these inspiring stories. When you first heard about Marvin and what Marvin Gord was doing, what was your initial reaction for you and the, the everyone, the great people of Baycrest? Uh, we were just blown away, right? It's remarkable. Here's a 99 year old World War II veteran who deserves more than anything just to enjoy his retirement, enjoy the rest of his days off, and relax. And here he is making every step count, right? He is doing what he can to make a difference and inspire multitude of people across generations. We have high school students even now who become Marvin buddies who are being physically active, walking virtually with Marvin and raising funds uh, for Marvin's cause. That's fantastic. Uh, Marvin, uh, when you look at a list of someone's a life resume, sometimes they go, oh, that's okay. But then I look at yours, a pharmacist, a VP of a marketing company, a lawyer, a financing human resource professor, and, of course, uh, completed a Canadian securities course and a decorated World War II veteran. Marvin, um, you're the kind of can-do guy that inspires all of us. When did you get the first idea that you wanted to do this walk to raise money for Baycrest? Oh, I thought about it ever since I was born. Probably about six months old. (laughs) (laughs) You were walking that young, Marvin. Absolutely. (laughs) What is your name? Jim. Hi, Jim. How you doing? Marvin, it's a pleasure. How are you? I'm terrific. Thank you very much. What can I do for you? Well, I mean, Marvin, I mean, what you're doing is, is special. As Rafi said, it's inspiring youth. Um... I mean, for a lot of people, it's a blessing to be alive at 99, and some people just want to sit and relax, but you are not the sit and relax kind of guy. Tried it once, I didn't like it. (laughs) (laughs) How much do you enjoy now? When you're done all your walk, it estimates you'll walk well over 800 kilometers. You just must enjoy just getting out there and walking around and getting in the fresh air. Well, I do that. I've been doing that for many, many years, especially at the Toronto Rehabilitation Center one of the tops in the world. And uh, what it does is it keeps me young. In fact, they called me a liar the last time I was being tested because I told them I was 99. They said, you lied. You're only 77. <laughs> that's, what they're, that's what they're testing us. That's incredible. It, and yeah. <laughs> your daughter, Lisa, must enjoy it as well. I'm sure there's times she says, Dad, would you slow down? But I don't think, if uh, Lisa, there's any way you're going to slow down your father, Marvin. No, none, none at all. <laughs> he's a go-getter, and uh, listen, he's been walking for oh, umpteen years, and he finally decided that, you know, with the pandemic, that he's going to step up and make his steps count. Um, that he walks anyway, so why should they not count for something important? Like helping out. You know, and he's helping Baycrest, uh, the Safeguarding Our Seniors program. I've done some fundraising for Baycrest, most recently the Seal Fit. It's uh, it's amazing work. And anything we can do to protect our elderly and the people most vulnerable, especially what we've seen with COVID, is a beautiful thing, Lisa. 
Absolutely. We are very, very proud of him. And I think that everybody has to kind of open up and realize that the seniors are part of the most vulnerable part of our society. And many of them are in these hospitals and long-term care homes, etc. And they can't get out during the pandemic. They're stuck, and how sad is that? I'm very blessed. I'm sitting here with my father uh, together. We get to visit each other. He gets to see his daughters. Um, but there are those that can't, and we have to help them not to feel so locked up and not so isolated. The Safe Scarting Our Seniors program and the campaign will help uh, supply the materials and the tools for them to be connected to the outside world, to their medicals, to their occupational therapies, to their programs by using um, all the wonderful technology that we have around us. We're so blessed to have that in this day and age. Well, at least as you all know, and I just discovered your father's got a wonderful sense of humor, but he's also, <laughs> I think, too humble to a fault. Quoted as saying, well, I was never really in a battle in World War II. That's why I'm still here. He was a big part of the war effort in the RCF and RAF, and it's people like that which we are able to live the life we have in Canada. Absolutely, and we have to say thank you for your service that we are so free to be able to do this. Um, he, Yeah, he was not in battle, but he definitely was a radar specialist, and without the radar specialist, the airplanes wouldn't have been able to fly, and who knows where we would have been today. So, yes. Uh, unbelievable. Uh, uh, Rafi, I mean, I I've done seal fit for Baycrest. I've played the hockey. That's one thing, but to see what Marvin's doing, uh, is it inspiring other people and contacting us and, hey, I think I want to do something to help Baycrest like Marvin Gord is doing? Oh, 100%. First of all, he's inspiring people to get active. Me, myself, I'm 34, and it made me think, what am I doing to be active? So now <laughs> yeah. I'm on the treadmill every morning, keeping up with Marvin, doing three and a half miles myself. And like I said earlier, we got high school kids now, inspired by Marvin, who created their own virtual walking pages on marvinsmillion.com. And you have groups of students from UCC. Uh, in the summertime, he got uh, the CITs, the counselor and trainings from Camp Manitou, to create online fundraising pages. They're walking around their neighborhoods, and they're asking their friends and family to support Marvin's cause to make sure that we can raise as much money as possible for safeguarding our seniors campaign here at Baycrest. That's uh, fantastic. Marvin, last word to you. Uh, you've been doing a lot of great work in your life, but you're the kind of person that is always not just going to rest on your laurels. After you complete this and after you reach your goal, what's next for you, Marvin? I haven't quite decided yet. Have you got any ideas? <laughs> well, I'm definitely not going to tell you to rest. That's for sure. That's obviously a waste of my time. I don't understand the word. Could you explain it, please? <laughs> Marvin, thank you so much for your service. Thank you for everything you're doing for Baycrest and inspiring all of us. It's Marvin Gord, it's people like you that uh, make this kind of job the fun that I have. So I just wanted to, on behalf of all our listeners, thank you so much and continue good health and great success with what you're doing. And thank you for your help. We appreciate it. My pleasure. Marvin Gord, Lisa Hemi, Rafael Oblonsky from Baycrest, the Baycrest Foundation. Marvin Gord doing his thing to safeguard our seniors on the feed. Coming up, students of dance are back in the studio. This is the feed on 105.9 The Region. Follow us on Twitter at 105.9 The Region. Ann Romer and more of the feed after the break. This is 105.9 The Region.
This is the feed on 105.9 The Region. I'm Ann Romer. Earlier this week, dance studios got the green light to open their doors. Here's Amber Pay with the steps to make it happen safely. Recently, York Region went back into a modified stage two, and initially, dance studios were included to be shut down, along with gyms, and the dance world literally fought back and one to reopen. I'm joined now by Denise Somerville Quinn, who's the director of Somerville Dance Academy in Richmond Hill. And you are here to tell me all about this stuff, Denise. So welcome. Well, thanks. Thanks for having me, Amber. Good to, good to hear you. Nice to hear you, too. And backstory, uh, Denise and I actually went to university together. So we kind of know each other, uh, but we haven't seen each other in, I don't know, 30 years, perhaps. Oh, possibly that, yes. <laughs> so back at the beginning of the pandemic, Denise, with everything stopped, and we all remember that, everything stopped, everything shut down, everything's closed. What was that like for you and the Dance Academy to try and navigate well, well, it's, it's, I mean, yes, it's been challenging since uh, the beginning, like way back in March, mm-hmm. um, um, we shut down and I made the choice, like our studio, we shut down completely. Um, we didn't run any classes at that point. We didn't run any um, like Zoom classes or that type of format. We um, put together a Google Classroom with um teaching and training videos that my teachers all went in and recorded and we uploaded. They also gave them written like PDF activity sheets of like training, things like that. Mm-hmm. We did eventually get into some uh, virtual FaceTime private lessons uh, during the complete shutdown as well. And that was through like stage one and stage two. Um, yeah. So it, it was definitely extremely challenging. And then when we all sort of got the nod that things were going to reopen again, I'm sure that was a huge relief. You're probably trying to gather your classes yeah. together and try and figure all of that out. So if you were thinking about going back to uh, what we say, the new normal, how did that look before getting told you were going to be pushed back? Okay. Oh, so, I mean, in terms of being putting into stage three, when we were, along with gyms and stuff, were allowed yes, to, like, open, open to um, everyone, mm-hmm. right? Or, or whatever our limits would allow. Right. Um, well, I had to do a complete overhaul of the facility um, to try to comply with all the social distancing measures, the two-meter difference. We, like many studios, put down with um, tape, social distance, like, dance squares right. um, that were six feet square and spaced out with gaps in between. Uh, I invested in multiple cleaning products, um, hand-free sanitizing stations for when they enter and exit the building. Um, I had to actually convert one of my studios. There's three rooms in my facility. Mm -hmm. One of them into a partial exit hallway because our existing hallway wasn't wide enough to allow for two-way traffic. Um, So... Uh, kindly, a, a, a dance god came in and helped facilitate that, and put down like all the uh, like the plexiglass stuff right. that you see in stores. Mm-hmm. Hung that from the ceiling. Oh wow! Yeah, you did everything. Yeah. You so, did a total uh, overhaul. Obviously, we reduced numbers in classes, um, and you know, at the time for stage three, um, my capacity could be um, 13 dancers plus a teacher in two of my rooms and seven dancers plus a teacher in the third. So we have been sort of running along those. Obviously, uh, time in between every single class they're cleaning, the floors get cleaned in between every class. Mm-hmm. Um, the kids sanitize on the way in, on the way out. Um, yes. they all all the they protocols masked? everywhere is, is following. 
And are they are the kids masked while they're in class as well? Uh, well, the teachers are full time masked. We have to, but the York Region um, bylaw at this point in time uh, allows them if they choose to uh, remove their mask during like the physical activity as long as they stay in their square. I got you. So then so, we went from stage three of being open to all of the sudden, boom, going back to stage two and a modified stage two, which right. meant that all of the sudden, along with gyms, you had to shut down right. again. But then there was that big backlash that I talked about at the beginning and uh, the dance community yes. rallied together. And now you've been reopened again. And tell me what that yes. is like now. Well, what that was like, again, it, it, there's, there's still confusion and, and waiting for clarification. Now, the, um, throughout all of the shutdown, um, the studio directors were getting support from each other within a, um, a Facebook group, Dance Safe Ontario. Um, and so people were comparing experiences and answers and stuff that they were getting, even for questions for back in Stage 3, the, the general reopening that we all got, mm-hmm. what guidelines everyone was following, um, so, uh, someone within that group created the petition. Um, we all obviously like signed it, shared it, and then it, 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 it took off and then resulted in the announcement that I believe came down on Monday night of this week. Yes. So at Somerville Dance Academy, what, what is your, because you're getting all these different uh, scenarios, mm-hmm. what are you going to do about it? Well, we now have to relook at our, our classes. We have to, and it's going to take time, obviously, um, to now figure out how are we going to um, split or handle any classes that we currently have um, 10 or more registered. Okay. So does that go back and, to then online learning? Uh, it, it may end up being uh, a hybrid. Okay. So we might get half and half in. Um, it, it, honestly, at this point, because I have just now got this information, now I have to move on to that job. I, I literally have probably had to redo my schedule at least four times so oh. far this season. So frustrating. But, you know, if there's, if there's anything I know is that dancers are very determined and yeah. very disciplined, and I know that yes. you are doing everything you absolutely possibly can to make we, it we, we physically are. Like, um, you know, like we all and all of my teachers, I have fantastic teachers um, on my faculty. Like, in the end, we all love teaching kids. Mm-hmm. We're all really uh, good at what we do. They've been super supportive of, me, of, of the studio throughout all of this process. Um, same with my office staff. Um, all the families who have come back and re-registered, um, like, fantastic like amazing like, I'm, I'm truly truly grateful for that we like we wouldn't be here with without them yeah. um and all kids activities are really suffering right now oh. not not just dance yeah. there there's challenges with all of them thank you so much denise somerville quinn from somerville dance academy in richmond hill we really appreciate your time thank you oh thank you very much for having me amber Pandemic, the board game, yes, it is a board game called Pandemic, a cooperative game where players try to beat the virus, very much like what the world is attempting to do right now in real life. Renowned American board game creator Matt Leacock joins us on the feed from his Sunnyvale, California design studio where the magic begins. Hey, Matt, thanks for joining us. 
Hey, man. Thanks for having me. So what inspired you to create Pandemic? Well, I worked on the game, I think, about 12, 15 years ago, back when the SARS um, epidemic had come through. And it seemed like such a natural um, bad guy to fight in a game that I thought I would try my hand at creating a game where you, you fought disease. So that was post-SARS, and you were influenced by SARS. Did you have any trouble trying to sell the idea, pitch the idea? Oh, I did. Uh, I worked on the game for about three years, and uh, while working on it, I was pitching it to publishers. And I remember one one uh, product manager in particular said, oh, a, a game named Pandemic, there's no way I would be able to sell a game like that. And uh, I actually changed the name for a while and then reverted back uh, when, I, when I finally did find the publisher. What did you change the name to temporarily? Oh, it was something that just wasn't as strong. It was called Global Outbreak for a little while. And I, I met with the publisher who was interested in doing the game, and we both agreed that Pandemic was a much better title. Hmm. Who knew? It was a foreshadowing, that's for sure. So what finally clicked? How did it then finally become something that was saleable and marketable? Well, at the time it came out, there weren't a whole lot of cooperative games on the market. And I think it clicked with people because um, it, it's a scary game to play. I mean, you've got the threat of disease. Uh, but at the same time, you get to work together with other people and uh, to, to try to overcome it. And I think that was a new kind of experience for a lot of people where they were playing a cooperative game and uh, not fighting each other. I guess that leads me to a very straightforward question. What's the difference between a competitive game and a cooperative game like Pandemic? Sure. I mean, I think a lot of people think of games as uh, synonymous with competition because most of the games out there, you're competing against each other. In a uh, cooperative game, however, you're all working together to try to defeat the game. So the game is sort of your opponent, like a group uh, puzzle-solving kind of experience where you're all putting your heads together to try to beat the game. And in this case, it's trying to beat the virus as well, which is mirroring what's happening right now around the world. Did you consult with specialists like infectious disease experts or the medical profession when you were putting all of this together, Matt? You know, I did some reading. I read The Hot Zone, which is about, um, I think it was the Marburg virus at the time. Um, so I did a, a fair amount of uh, reading, but didn't set out to actually create a simulation. So uh, if you're looking for hard science, uh, the game is more of a cinematic adventure um, where you play the heroes uh, working together to, to fight the bug. It's not so much um, a scientific exercise. So didn't do a tremendous amount of uh, upfront research on it. There was an article written by Ed Condren about you, and you're quoted as saying, what I like most about the game is that it brings people together. We get to be scientists. Is that really the case? Well, I think you get to be, you get to strategize. Uh, you get to think about, um, you have to make a lot of decisions about trading off um, short-term goals versus long-term goals. And you have to do a lot of risk analysis and um, really do a lot of critical thinking in, in the way that, you know, a scientist might. But it's not like you're there, you know, stirring a Petri dish or anything. <laughs> that makes sense? <laughs> it does make sense, and although I find that rather exciting, frankly. <laughs> so what, <laughs> what has been the response from the medical community to the game Pandemic? It's been very positive. I've been very uh, happy to see that a lot of uh, doctors and epidemiologists have tried it. Um, I think it's, it's fun um, because they get to be the, the heroes uh, of the game as opposed to, like, being an adventurer or, uh, you know, traditional kind of um, 
hero who runs around using violence to solve problems. He gets to give you science, and, and they get to be the protagonists. So how do you actually play the game? Let, let's do a little role-playing if we can. Sure. So uh, you take on the role of um, maybe a medic or a scientist or a researcher, and on your turn you move around the board, which is a map of the world, and you uh, treat disease in different, different cities. And you're basically trying to, to treat people in order to keep uh, big outbreaks from happening. So how are you given that information about where you are located and what the issue is in terms of disease? Yeah, so um, you can imagine that the, the board is like uh, just any old game board uh, in some map of the world. You can think of like the risk map. And you've got a pawn, uh, which represents you, and the disease is represented by little plastic cubes that accumulate in different cities around the world. So what is the desired outcome, Matt? To beat the virus, to find a vaccine, to rule the world? <laughs> <laughs> you and your fellow players win the game if you're able to discover the cures to four different strains of the disease before time runs out. So time can run out if you run out of cards or if uh, um, there's too many outbreaks of disease around the world. So you have to kind of balance the need to uh, run to certain cities and deal with these um, uh, potential outbreaks uh, while at the same time exchanging information in the form of cards with your fellow players to find the cures. So there must have been on your part some uh, amount of research in order to understand where there could be potential hotspots when it comes to disease and the kinds of diseases that might be or still are percolating uh, around the world. Yeah, what I did was when designing the world map is I looked at the major population centers of the world and looked at population density and tried to find those cities that I thought were also representative uh, of different regions. So um, you'll see all the different uh, continents represented in major population centers. Um, so you can find, you know, someplace close to you, wherever you are in the world, uh, that, that might be infected. Um, and then everything else is fairly abstract. The diseases aren't named. Uh, I wanted there to be a little bit of distance. Um, I didn't want, you know, to try to capitalize on any specific outbreak uh, and be respectful of, of anybody who lost anybody to a specific disease. Uh, but they, they function um, roughly the way, you know, a disease might. They, you know, different cities get infected, and it, they can get worse, and they can reach some sort of threshold where they start infecting their neighbors. So while you were putting this together, it was well before 2020 uh, when March the pandemic was declared around the world here. Uh, did you have any sense, did your spidey senses tingle at all that this actually could become a reality in the year 2020? Oh, my gosh. When I designed the thing, uh, pandemics were something in my mind that happened somewhere else to, <laughs> to someone else. And so when... Uh, when COVID began to uproot, it was very surreal for me, uh, you know, getting swept into it uh, personally. It was very, kind of disorienting. Um, uh, kind of a surreal experience to go through this uh, this year. I mean, I'm sure it is for, for everybody out there, but um, having designed the game, it was uh, a strange lens to look at it through. And that lens is now full of sales. You know, I hate to sort of lean on the business side of things, but that is a reality in your world right now. The sales of this board game, they were very strong prior to the pandemic. How have they been since the pandemic was declared? Well, I think a lot of hobby games and especially puzzles are, are really up right now. They're a fairly inexpensive way to uh, you know, enjoy time with the people that you're isolating with. And uh, frankly, I mean, the, the 
the name uh, of the game is, is very much in the, the news. It's very topical. So, um, But I think what's been encouraging for me is that it's given players uh, an opportunity to kind of process what they're going through and, and maybe fight back uh, against the disease when they're playing. Um, so that, that's been kind of encouraging. that Some people have enjoyed playing it to um, sort of as a, as a way to process it and talk about it and, uh, and kind of deal with what's going on to some extent. Do you think there are any parallels between playing the game and the real-life challenges that COVID-19 are presenting, is presenting? Yeah, I think, I think so. I mean, you can't win the game unless you all work together. You have to communicate and cooperate and coordinate all your actions together. And it takes everybody working together in order to kind of overcome it. And I think that's very, very true right now. Um, I think uh, we learn a lot from, from playing it, uh, just, just knowing how important it is uh, to do those things. It's, it's really required. It's going to require all of us working together to, to overcome um, what's going on right now. You have fans around the world. You are so well known uh, by so many. But here's the important question. What does your family think of your success? <laughs> uh, let's see. So, I mean, the game was inspired by my wife because I, I really enjoyed uh, playing cooperative games with her. Uh, they went over much better than, you know, uh, <laughs> hardcore negotiation games. So um, she's been along for the journey all along, and that's been a lot of fun. Um, my eldest is, is quite a, a play tester and enjoys the process, and my youngest really would rather have nothing to do with the game because it doesn't do any. She's a teenager and would rather be playing Minecraft. <laughs> you strike me as someone whose mind never stops. What is next? What are we going to see being rolled out uh, from your design studio in beautiful downtown Sunnyvale, California? I'm currently working on a game about climate change, uh, so I see that as a, another threat that uh, uh, is at least as... as uh, as um, challenging as, as these pandemics. So uh, that's been a very educational experience for me, and a very rewarding one. So I hope I can translate into a game that that's, uh, resonates as well. Matt Leacock, Pandemic, the board game creator, designer, and all-around superstar when it comes to board games and much more. Thank you so much for joining us today on The Feed. Hey, thanks for having me. The clocks are set to fall back on November 1st this year, but there are those who think this practice is out of date and run its course. In fact, earlier this month, an MPP from Ottawa tabled the Time Amendment Act, which would end the twice-a-year time change and move us to daylight saving time permanently. Professor Lakin Thomas from York University's Biology Department joins us next on the feed. Thank you for taking the time, Professor. Thank you. So what do you think? Is this a good idea? Well, the bill has some good parts and it has some bad parts. So what we have to do is look at the two parts of the bill. First of all, it's proposing to get rid of the twice-yearly time change when we spring forward and fall back. And then it's proposing if we do that, what kind of time are we going to be on permanently? And it's proposing permanent daylight saving time. Now, I and the other scientists I represent as in the Canadian Society for Chronobiology um, think it's a great idea to scrap the twice-yearly time change, but we're not in favor of year-round daylight saving time. We like to have year-round standard time instead. And, and why are you more in favor of standard time instead? 
Well, we have to think about our body clocks and how they respond to the sun. We have a clock in the brain, a master clock, and it sets itself to light. And then we have clocks all over our body, like in your liver and your guts and your lungs, and they're set by the brain clock, but they're also set by other things like your your meal cycle, your food. But then we have the social clock, the one on the wall, what society tells us to do. Now, we know that our brain clock has to get some light in the morning to reset it every day because our body clock runs actually a little bit slow. We lose about 10 to 30 minutes a day. We need morning light to make our clock move a little earlier to speed us up a little so we stay in step with, with the sun. And if we get a lot of light in the evening, in the late afternoon, it actually slows our clocks down, moves them later. What happens with daylight saving time year-round is we're getting more light in the afternoon, early evening, and it's pushing our clocks later. It's making us stay up later, go to bed later. Mm -hmm. And then the social clock, your alarm clock goes off. You wake up and you've lost some sleep. Now, if we go to standard time year-round, it's going to be closer to our body clock where when the sun is at the highest point, at midday, the the watch and the clock on the wall say it's actually noon. And that would help our body clock stay synchronized with the sun better, and we wouldn't feel jet-lagged. So what we're afraid of is with daylight saving time year-round, we're going to have some chronic jet lag. <laughs> now, speaking of clocks, can you tell us a little bit about your work in the lab, the clock lab? Well, I am a scientist who works at the basic level of really um, just curiosity-driven research. I just want to know how living things can tell time. So my lab works down at the molecular level. We do genetics and we do biochemistry and molecular biology, trying to figure out what are the actual proteins and molecules that can keep 24-hour time because we know even the simplest organisms down to single cells can keep 24-hour time, which is an amazing thing for them to be able to do. Mm-hmm. So in order to investigate this better, I don't work with humans because it's hard to throw humans into a blender and grind them up, you know. And So we use fungus instead. We have a simple organism, which is a, a bread mold, and we can do lots of genetics and biochemistry and molecular biology with that and try to get a handle on what are the actual molecules that can keep time. So take us back, if you can. How did this whole routine of time change start? Why do we do it? Well, why do we do it? That is a good question. Um, The first person who really started pushing the idea was an Englishman, a builder and an outdoorsman named William Willett. In the early part of the 20th century, around 1905, he started proposing this. And it seems it's primarily because he was a keen golfer and he just wanted to get out on the golf course in the evening and have a little more (laughs) fun uh, golfing. Um, uh, Strangely enough, the first place that officially adopted it was Port Arthur, Ontario in 1908, adopted daylight saving time. And I don't know why. Um, but then it really took off in World War One. In around 1916, Germany and Austria-Hungary brought in daylight saving, thinking it would help them save on coal. They wanted to save energy. They thought it would save on burning coal for heat and lighting. And other countries did the same. But then they all quit doing it after the war. They started, various countries did it again during World War II, again hoping it would save energy. And then uh, our current status started in the 1970s when there was an energy crisis in North America and Europe. And again, countries said, let's bring in daylight saving time because we think it'll save energy. But 
people have analyzed the energy usage data, and they said it never had that effect. Some places might have seen a slight positive effect on energy use, but other places had a negative effect. It just depended on your climate and your location. So that was never really a good reason for it. <laughs> it, it seems... A bit unusual. So it began in the 19th century with someone who wanted to play golf. Now, this time around, it seems like this MPP is, you know, his proposal has to do with, he says, uh, safety for Ontarians. They would be happier. It would be better for business. What do you think about his arguments? Yes, well, um, a lot of his argument is an economic argument. And he's saying uh, with a little more light in the afternoon, people are going to go out shopping and it will be an economic boost. Mm -hmm. um, well, maybe people might change their shopping habits a little to do more shopping when it's light, but I cannot see that that is going to be an economic boost. It's not as if we're all sitting on a pile of cash saying, gee, I wish it was light in the afternoon because then I could spend my money, right? right? We're going to spend our money. Maybe we'll spend it online. Maybe we'll spend it in another way, but I don't think it's going to increase economic activity and and be part of a COVID economic recovery. I, I really don't see any value in that argument. Um, people do like to have leisure in the afternoon, in the summer, and that's a strong argument, and there's a very strong emotional pull to say, let's have daylight saving time year-round. Wow, does that mean we're going to have summer all winter? <laughs> no, it doesn't. It means in the winter, you're going to be getting up way early in the dark Ugh. because sun sunrise is going to be later, right? right. You're going to be... The sun isn't going to rise till like 9 a.m. here in Toronto. And the further north you go, the later the sunrise is going to be. And when, when various co countries have tried year-round daylight saving time before, it sounds great. Everybody votes in favor of it. And then after the first couple of winters, they're all saying, no, we can't stand getting up in the dark in the winter. And they drop it. So the U.S tried it for a couple of years in the 1970s and after World War II. The U.K. tried it for about three years. Russia tried it for about three years. And after the first winter, everybody is complaining so much about getting up in the dark in the winter that, that they just drop it. Unfortunately, they go back usually to changing twice a year. We would like to see them drop the changes but go back to standard time year-round. So here's what we know right now. The bill has passed second reading at the ledge at Queen's Park. We know that we need New York and Quebec to follow suit. But next Sunday, we know for now that we fall back. Thank you for joining us on the feed, Professor. We really appreciate it. Very happy to be here. If you missed any part of our show, go to 1059theregion.com or follow us on Twitter at 1059theregion. I'm Ann Romer. Thank you for listening.